Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 25. I'm going to read briefly from Proverbs chapter 25, just to provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage. Our sermon this morning is from Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 24, and we'll turn there in just a moment. But for now, first here from Proverbs 25, we're going to begin reading in verse 8 and end in verse 15. Proverbs 25, verses 8 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not go hastily into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his master's. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Amen. Solomon, in his wisdom, perceives the power of patience. Notice the three areas in which he highlights the significance and value of patience. First, in dealing with difficult neighbors. Now, I know those of us who live in Cambridge and Boston are vaguely familiar with difficult neighbors. You know, it's, it's a distant experience, right? But for those few who have tasted difficult neighbors, Solomon says it is wise to be patient, to deal gently, to speak directly, to not hurry into court, Legislation and judicial action is seldom the solution to a strained relationship. If we as humans are to get along, we need patience more than we need jurisprudence. But then secondly, he says it is good for difficult conversations. Again, have any of you found yourselves in a situation where it's, you're going to have to say something hard to somebody? Solomon gives us this wisdom. Be patient. Let your words be carefully crafted like jewelry in the ear, like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Be thoughtful and deliberate about your words. Don't just simply multiply them and heap them upon people, but carefully select them. And then thirdly, he speaks of when there is a difficult message. A faithful message, rightly delivered, the truth spoken in love, is refreshing like snow in the harvest. By contrast, the one who is hasty and untruthful is like cloud and wind without rain. All the expense and none of the benefit. And so Solomon concludes, there is power in patience. It persuades those who are rulers. And it breaks those who are tough like bone. In our gentleness, in our patience, 
we exercise a power that changes the world. With this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read the whole chapter, Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. I'm also going to preach from the whole chapter. Reason for this is that I think it's one whole congruous story to be kept together. The other is, I don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger before I go on vacation, and you're all like in the middle of the story, and it's awkward. So we're going to do the whole story this morning. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. <coughs> Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection from the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion 
to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Amen and amen. My brothers and I had never seen the ocean. We had grown up on a farm, landlocked, and far from the sea. But on that first vacation, we went to a beach house, and we dug in the sand, and we dove in the waves, and it was a great delight to our little hearts. Until that moment came, when I saw the wave rolling in, rising higher and higher and higher until it was towering over me, and then it came crashing down upon me. It flung me into the sand and bounced me along and dragged me out. And I was far from the shore, far more than I wanted to be when it finally let me go. Shaken and bruised, frightened, I swam back to the coast. When I got there, I sat down in the sand and I watched as all the quiet little waves continued to roll and sat there thinking, what was that? I had in my little imagination the idea that the ocean is this plaything where children can go and just dance in the waves. That was the moment I realized that no, the ocean is a great and wild thing to be respected and feared, whose power far surpassed my own. My friends, I fear that we are so often tempted to domesticate God. And to forget what C.S. Lewis taught us, he is not tame. We so often want to make Christianity this tool by which we gratify our own desires, by which we achieve our own mental and emotional well-being, by which we situate the world in a self-satisfying way, and God is reduced to this petty but cheerful grandpa. My friends, we are presented with an altogether different God this morning in Acts 24. A real God, sovereign and almighty, glorious and holy, yet gentle and loving. A God in whom there is true peace, lasting peace, deep-rooted peace. You see, my friends, Jesus alone gives true peace. Jesus alone gives true peace. So wait patiently for Him. Wait patiently for Him. Let's think about this a little bit this morning. I want to take us through this story and see how this truth emerges. Notice at the beginning, Paul is on trial. 
He is standing before the Roman governor in Caesarea, the capital of the Judean area. The Roman governor had been appointed by Caesar himself. His name was Felix. And there, Ananias brings his elders and he brings a spokesman, a certain orator named Tertullus. The reason the leaders of the Jewish nation turn the responsibility of the speech over to Tertullus is twofold. First, he's an orator. He actually knows how to use words. He is a gifted and trained speaker. But secondly, his name is Tertullus. That is, he speaks Latin. It is likely that Ananias and the other elders are far more at home in Greek or Aramaic. But Felix is most at home in Latin. And so they bring up Tertullus, a Latin speaker. And he begins his accusations in verse 2 by laying out two charges. The first, in verses 2 and 3, is that Felix the governor has been a source of great peace. He refers to it as a prosperity to the nation. Some of your translations might call it reforms to the nation. Perhaps Tertullus is here thinking of the more lax-handed rule that this particular Roman had been exercising over the area. Greater religious freedom, to use our modern-day term. Perhaps he's thinking of the roads and the commerce and the shipping that great emblematic feature of the Pax Romana, where Tertullus was recognizing Rome has been good for the wallet. It is swollen, it is full. Tertullus looks at this great peace that Rome has brought, religious freedom, wealth, prosperity, international significance, and he attributes it to this Felix, to his foresight, This is exaggerated flattery, of course. This is buttering up the governor to get him so that he's willing to receive the message and to believe it. It is also a sinister misunderstanding of peace. Friends, we should hold up Tertullus as a mirror and recognize how often our hearts are tempted to fall into the same Sinister definition of peace. We live in a land of peace, we say. Do we not? But what do we mean by that? We mean our wallets are full. We mean our bellies are full. We mean our attics, our basements, and our storage rooms are full. We mean that everything in life is generally shaped exactly as we want it. We have defined peace in the image of our own ambitions. Like Tertullus, we have begun to slap the label peace on what we ourselves find satisfying and gratifying. Instead of recognizing that there is a greater peace, a deeper peace, a more enduring peace that doesn't rise and fall with the stock market, that doesn't rise and fall with American specialism, that doesn't rise and fall with the imperial presence of any particular nation in the history of the world. There is a peace that what Paul calls surpasses all understanding. That is the peace to which we are to wait. The peace to which we are to look. The peace for which we should seek. And we will not find it in the servants of Rome nor the kingdoms of this world. Tertullus, though, secondly, 
Inasmuch as he acknowledges the great peace that Felix has brought, labels Paul a disturber of the peace. Notice these accusations in quick succession, beginning in verse 5. We have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension, and thirdly, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. These are heavy charges indeed, and they go in descending order. We have found this man a plague. In Roman society, plague is not a polite word such as we might use. We might casually refer to something as a plague, but we live in the age of vaccines. They didn't. Plague was a death sentence to an entire city, an entire civilization. When he says that Paul is a plague, Tertullus means Paul is the end of the Jewish nation. If he is let to go free, there will be no future for the Jewish people. He's not altogether wrong, is he? He says, secondly, that he is a creator of dissension. He stirs up riots everywhere he goes. In fact, in this, he is likewise not altogether wrong, is he? How many cities did Paul preach in? How many of them ended in him being violently thrown out? It is true. Where Paul goes, there tends to be violence. There is an element to this cunning spinning of the tale. Thirdly, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That is to say, Paul goes about society seeking to make followers of Jesus Christ. He seeks to make disciples of that Nazarene Jesus, that lowly, pathetic man who died at the hands of the Romans. Yes, he is the one who says, worship a crucified Christ. This is the accusation. He goes on. To lie and say that Paul profaned the temple. This was a misunderstanding on the day of the riot. He had not profaned the temple. He goes on to lie and say, we had seized him in order to bring him to trial so that we could, you know, judge him according to our law. Evidently, judging according to the law is a euphemism for killing him in the streets. Because that's what they are actually doing. He says, thirdly, that Lysias came with great violence wrenched him out of our hands, and took him away to accuse him here before you. In this way, Tertullus weaves three half-truths with three full lies to lay out this accusation of Paul. In this way, friends, we should hold up the mirror of Tertullus again and see clearly our own experience. Paul, the preacher of the Prince of Peace, has hereby been declared to be a disturber of the peace. And is that not our experience? Is that not what we find in our society today? That if you speak the truth of Jesus Christ, you will find that much of the world around you calls you a disturber of the peace. Let me use the language that's a little more familiar to us. Are we not living in a world where to preach the Prince of Peace risks being called a bigot? A biased and wretched, selfish person. My friends, we as the followers of Jesus who long to make disciples of Jesus, who wish to be known as ringleaders of the sect of the Nazarenes, who wish for people to love Jesus and to follow Him, we must recognize good has become bad. And good news has become bad news. 
We live in a society impatient for our silence. Where will we find peace in such a world? What do you do when the world hates you? Where do you find peace when no one in your life wants you? Where do you find peace when the good you seek to do becomes a condemnation for you? Well, Paul has found it. And he offers up not primarily a defense of himself, but an invitation to the governor to discover real peace. Notice Paul's three-part answer. Beginning in verse 10, Paul receives a nod from the governor. He may respond to this charge. Is he a disturber of the peace? In verse 10, Paul says, I answer cheerfully because I know that you have been a governor for many years. He knows the experience of this governor, Felix. He knows that he is fully aware of the events of the past several years, indeed the past several decades. Luke himself records in verse 22 that Felix has a more accurate knowledge of the way. What this means in verse 11 is that Paul knows he can ascertain the truth of their interactions. I know that you have connections in Jerusalem. I know that you have impartial bystanders who can actually report to you that I've only been there 12 days. I know that you are a well-informed governor. You have the truth. You see, the truth is, over the last couple of decades, the way has been an oppressed and persecuted people. This is not the first time the Jews have come before Felix trying to get somebody killed. He is aware of their animosity. He is aware, by contrast, of Acts chapter 6, in which the people who follow Jesus care for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Paul first appeals to the truth. We are not disturbers of the peace. No, those who follow Jesus are promoters of peace, for they care for the oppressed and the poor and the needy. My friends, as we increasingly come into a society that is convinced that evangelicalism is nothing more than Trump supporters, as we increasingly come into a society in which everyone believes that churchgoers are those who are out to get you, to rob you of fun, to destroy your peace and freedom, we have a greater and greater burden to prove them wrong with love. Real love. Not the love the social media is crawling out for. The love that feeds the empty stomach. The love that feeds the naked and gives housing to the homeless. There is a mercy ministry that arises within the people of God and answers the accusation. Felix knows the truth. That the church of these days were the ones who were oppressed and yet caring for the oppressed. He knows they're not the villains. My friends, can we hold up the same credentials? There is a beautiful thing. To live on the street here, and to find so many neighbors who disagree so much with so much of what I say, and yet every one of them thinks so highly of this congregation, because they have seen your care, 
for others. Oh, to have a witness that silences the slanders of others in which those around us would say, I know a people who keep the peace. They love the oppressed. But secondly, Paul argues that not only has this broader movement, the way, not been a source of dissension or trouble, but a source of care and love for the oppressed, he argues that he himself has personally kept this mission. That not only has the church been a source of peace in the world, but he himself has as well. Paul argues in verse 12 and 13 that they did not find him disputing anyone in the, in the temple, nor inciting a crowd. In fact, they didn't find him doing that in the temple. They also didn't find him doing that in the synagogue, and they didn't find him doing that in the city. At no point in his 12-day stay was Paul stirring up the mob, nor at any point was Paul seeking a disputation. No, according to verses 17 and 18, Paul was there on a very different mission. He had gone to the city to bring alms to the poor. He had gone to the synagogues to give to the needy and the hungry, to care for others. He had gone to the the temple in Jerusalem to present offerings to the needy of the nation. Far from being one who came to dispute Paul was one who came to give, to care for others. This, my friends, is a severe lesson for us. In a society that loves disputation, we must beware the addiction of debating every detail of doctrine and leaving off weighty matters of love and justice. How much we wish to sell out our souls to be right rather than to be loving. And Paul sets an alternative example. There is a source of peace that wells up within us and spills out and says, I am here to care for others. I am here to serve others. We do not find peace, my friends, in the disputations in the courts of Jerusalem. We find peace in the meeting of the needs of the poor and the needy, what James in chapter 1 called true religion. This religion that is pure and undefiled, by which we lovingly care for others. Peace is found in such self-sacrificial service. But thirdly, Paul argues, not only has the way, the church of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus Christ, been a source of peace by caring for the oppressed, not only has he personally actually come for that exact mission, To meet the needs of the poor and the oppressed, Paul thirdly and finally argues, ultimately, this great legal case has come on the question of the resurrection of the dead. Is Jesus alive or is he not? In verse 14, Paul says, but this I confess. He denies that followers of Jesus disrupt the peace and argues that they keep the peace. He denies that he has disrupted the peace and shows that he has kept it. Instead, he says, no, what we're really arguing over, this I will freely confess, guilty as charged, Your Honor. I worship God, the God of my fathers. 
I will worship the God who spoke through the law and the prophets. I know that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the great debate here. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Son of God? Is Jesus born of the Virgin Mary actually come from God? This is what I believe. This is who I worship. This is the great debate. Did the law point to Jesus? Did the prophets point to Jesus? Did the fathers hope in Jesus? Paul says it's Jesus who has come. It is Jesus who has given me hope. It is Jesus who has fulfilled the promises and the covenants of old. It is Jesus who has overcome sin, Satan, and death. This is what is really the source of our contention. Verse 15. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. Paul says, in this I have a good conscience. That I have never offended any man. In telling every human that has ever lived. I know how to get out of death. Because my friends, every one of you will die. Everyone. The adorable little ones crying downstairs will die. And everyone up in age will die. But Paul says, I have found a fountain of peace. And his name is Jesus. He kept all the promises. He fulfilled all the hopes and dreams. He is exactly what the fathers looked for. He is exactly what the prophets preached. He is exactly what the law revealed. He is the one. And that, my friends, is the great question. Do we have a clear conscience? I know who Jesus is. My peace is not found in what He has given me. My peace is not found in what I wear or where I live or who I know, but I'm the fact that I know Jesus and I know He's alive. I know He is ruling and reigning in heaven. Indeed, Paul says in verses 20 and 21, this was the point of contention that broke the council in Jerusalem. I stood before them and we debated the stuff about the temple and we debated the stuff about Moses and we debated the stuff about circumcision and when we were done, I said, Jesus is alive. And they couldn't bear it. They could not bear to hear it. Is this one truth something you know? Is this the one truth that wakes you up in the morning, sends you to bed in peace at night? I know Jesus is alive. I don't know anything else. I don't know what happens tomorrow. I don't know what happens next year. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing in this decision or that decision. I don't know if I should go here or stay there. I don't know. You know what I do know? Jesus is alive. And I have perfect peace. For it is the only thing I need to know. This is the hope that has grounded the Apostle Paul. Having heard the two accusations of Tertullus, having heard the three responses of Paul, we now see Felix act. And in great governmental style, he decides to not decide. 
as has been done by many judges before him, and indeed many judges after him. He decides not to give a verdict. In verse 22, he simply adjourns the proceedings and sends them away. Yeah, you know what? When the Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll, I'll decide your case. Conveniently, he forgets to send an invitation to Lysias to come down. And so Lysias never comes down. And, you know, it works out. And so Paul is there in Caesarea. In verse 23, he commands the centurion to provide for Paul, that his friend should come and go freely, visiting him and caring for his needs. That Paul himself should come and go freely, having liberty, at least as regards the city of Caesarea. He can't go very far. He is technically under arrest and is technically in trial and needing to process the case. And what is more, in verses 24 and 25, we find that while Paul is cooling his heels in Caesarea, Felix repeatedly comes to him to hear him. He brings his Jewish wife, Drusilla. That's a sad and sordid tale that I'll leave out for now. In which they come to hear Paul present the gospel. And when Paul presents the root of his peace, the righteousness of Christ, the self-control that comes from the Holy Spirit and the judgment of God Almighty yet to come, this trinity terrifies Felix. And he says, oh, go away. And then he calls him back. And then he says, oh, go away. And then he calls him back. Why the yo-yo? Verse 26. He hoped that Paul would give him money. This was a common thing among Roman governors. If you get into a really thorny issue... And you don't know how to judge a case. There's a simple Roman solution. Find out who will pay more. And whoever will give the most money gets the case decided in his or her favor. But Paul won't play. Because Paul understands what is really wrong with Felix. He thinks that the answer to injustice is money. He's thinking like a Roman. I just need to keep the peace. I just need to keep everybody happy. I can't release Paul. It'll be a riot in Jerusalem. I can't keep Paul. He's not guilty of anything. So I'm just not going to decide. And I'm going to wait for someone to pay me to bring about the peace. He is looking to the idols of this world to purchase peace. And Paul won't have any of it. You see, Paul is in a desperate hurry to get to Jerusalem in order to get a ship to Rome. And yet Paul, unaccountably, in verse 27, is suddenly very happy to sit in Caesarea for two years. Do you not remember all those chapters where we went through story after story where Paul is like, I got to get to Rome, I got to get to Rome, I got to get to Rome. And all of a sudden, he's sitting in Caesarea with no hope of getting out of it. Every morning, he rises up and he looks into the bay, and there's another ship from Rome sailing away, and he's not on it. Can you imagine the despair, the frustration of watching ship after ship sail to the destination you've been dreaming of and you can't go? Jesus brought you that close and then just left you there. Where does Paul find peace and the patience to wait in the same sovereign Jesus? That he is his righteousness. 
that he is his self-control, that he is the answer to divine judgment, that Jesus is the one he knows, the one he trusts, and he's not afraid regardless of what he does. You see, that night, when I lay down in bed in that beach house, and I could feel the bruises in my body and the raw edges of my skin, I could also hear the hush and hiss and swell of the tide. And the same mighty waves that had hours before broken my body was now lulling me to sleep. My friends, the same sovereign hand that drags you down into the sorrows that overwhelm you is the same sovereign hand that sweetly rocks you to sleep each night. Jesus alone gives peace. You will not find peace in the empires of this world. You will not find peace in the idols of your heart. You will find peace when you know Jesus. And say, that's enough for me. I know him. And I will trust him. Wait patiently for him. Wait patiently for Him, for He alone gives true peace. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for this beautiful day, for this beautiful Savior. We give You thanks for this story, O God, in which You have revealed to us Your strength, Your wisdom, Your grace. We pray, O God, that You would forgive us That we have sought peace in the things of this world and not in you. Father, forgive us that we have been without peace. Finding that the strength and wisdom that we have leaned upon is insufficient. Father, we thank you that in your grace you bring us trial after trial. That empties us of our self-reliance and our earthly hopes. That in the deep despair and brokenness we might discover a greater source of joy and peace. That at the end of ourselves, we might find the beginning of you and your grace. Oh God, we give you thanks that there is a peace without end, a peace without comprehension, a peace that is greater than all that this world has to offer, true, lasting peace. And we give you thanks that his name is Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would draw us to him. That you would write his truth upon our hearts. And that we would know his peace. For this we pray in his name. Amen.